Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and I am delighted to welcome Katie Marquette to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Rachel. So Katie is the host of the Born of Wonder podcast, a podcast that I am a huge fan of and has been a a big inspiration point for me as I've been making this podcast. And I was lucky enough to be a guest on it in the last, I think, month or so. We talked about um, You've Got Mail, uh, which was delightful. And as we were talking about You've Got Mail, we discovered another New York film that we both really enjoyed, which was The Godfather. <laughs> so we're really covering the spectrum of films to to talk about. We like them all, you know, I mean, you, you, there's nothing outside of our interest here. So <laughs> That's it. We're small C Catholic as well as capital C Catholic in our interests. Right, universal. Um, So in this episode today, we're going to be talking about uh, The Godfather and uh, kind of some of the themes and imagery in it. But before we dive in, just if I don't know, Katie, if you wanted to give a little introduction to yourself and the work that you do. Sure. So yeah, my name's Katie Marquette. And um, I am a full time mom to a very active 19 month old and expecting another little girl in January. So that is certainly how I spend most of my time right now is wrangling a toddler. But um, I have a background in public radio and conflict resolution and writing. And I've had different jobs in those areas. Uh, These days I do project based audio work. And of course, my passion project is uh, my podcast that you mentioned, Born of Wonder, uh, which is also a blog by the same name, um, bornofwonder.com. So keeps me, keeps that intellectual side of, uh, of my brain, you know, alive and well. Um, and I get to meet really great people like you. I, it was, it's just so fun to like sort of have an excuse to, to, to chat with people about our passions and interests. So um, yeah, it's me. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. I definitely felt like we I think we said this on your podcast as well, but the the kindred spirit thing definitely came through. And it's so fun to get to meet and talk to people who are, you know, I would have no reason necessarily to ever encounter otherwise. So this has been so much fun. And yeah, and so for the episode today, we're both talking about a favorite film of ours, which is The Godfather. Uh, I was re-listening to a very early episode of this podcast, which was about violence in movies. And I do actually talk about The Godfather being one of my favorite films. Um, I mentioned the fact that I <laughs> I spent my teenage years watching mobster movies for some reason. My best friend, Cara, was um, really into them and she got me into them. And so, yeah, we, were, we, we kind of turned our nose up at rom-coms and then spent our Friday evenings watching mobster movies. And The, the Godfather was kind of the first and, and nothing ever really topped it. But um, I've definitely explored a lot in the genre. But yeah, to me, The Godfather is just... I'm I mean, it gets thrown out as one of the greatest movies of all time, but it really is. And rewatching it for this episode of the podcast really reminded me just how much of a masterpiece of filmmaking it is. Yeah, I totally. We actually said the same thing when we finished it. We were just like, that is just about as near perfect a movie, I think, as I've seen. You know, I mean, there are like, I think we thought of like two 
moments that my husband had to point out to me, just like an inconsistency or so, you know something in the filming. But I mean, the cast is so perfect, the arc of the story, just like the drama, just everything. Um, it is such a beautifully filmed movie and such a compelling story. Um, yeah, it's it's just a brilliant film. Yeah, and when I was watching it, even just down to the filmmaking quality, that like it's just shot in that beautiful sort of chiaroscuro shadows and light. And uh, I was thinking even because for some reason my TV doesn't pick up on there's sections of the film that have just like dialogue in Italian. And for whatever reason, like the, the subtitles should just come up, like they're just part of the movie, but they just don't on my TV. So I was sort of putting the subtitles on and off. Um, and it made me realize how much of the movie is in silence and is without dialogue or even without score. Like it just really relies on drawing you into this very intimate story of a family. And I think that's the genius of the movie is, is that it's so personal for a movie that's talking all about things being business. The movie is so personal. It is this tapestry of the rise and fall of a, of a family. And, you know, the runtime is like three hours and, I think what that leaves you with is this, it's all, it's a collection of moments in the history of this family. And obviously they're all tied together in this great story, but you're really kind of moving with them through time and taking your time to, to stay with them. Um, I think, I, I, I suppose, <laughs> I'm sure I better give a summary of The Godfather for anyone who hasn't watched it. I would really recommend it as a film, uh, but it is about the Corleone family, who are a, a mafia family based in uh, New York in 1945. And it is about the, in some ways, I really think it's about the succession line. Uh, it is about how they are trying to maintain power and how you hand over power to the next generation. So uh, Vito Corleone, the godfather, the, the the father figure in, in this family is trying to lead the family through kind of murky waters. I think there's always a sense that he's looking for ways to have more legitimate power. Um, but what's come in at this point in time is this move towards uh, uh, trafficking drugs, which he's very against. And it leads to uh, an assassination attempt on his life, which then begins a uh, rolling stone of effects. So his son steps into the, his eldest son, Sonny, steps into the role of, of taking over. But at the same time, his youngest son, Michael, who was previously kind of the outsider and the one who was going to le live a kind of legitimate life, maybe like as a senator, he's, he's, been in the war. He's a war hero. He's taken this path of being a more respectable and standing outside of this directly criminal part of his family. Um, but the attempt on his father's life leads him to um, try and protect his father from, from further attacks by himself assassinating a, another member of the, the, the mafia as well as a corrupt cop. And so this moment, it, com it comes kind of at the center of the story is the turning point where he then becomes the, the leader of the family and he becomes this kind of linchpin of, of, how, of the direction that the family is taking as his father survives the attempt but is growing older and needs to pass on on his legacy to his family. And that, that's essentially the trajectory of the story. But it's such a fascinating study of corruption and power and it to me it's 
very Shakespearean. I know there was a quote that Francis Ford Coppola had, that Francis Ford Coppola is obviously the director of of The Godfather, but he said in, in this notebook about his filmmaking that he said, The Godfather, which is a book by Mario Puzo, which when he read it, he said it was a story that was a metaphor for American capitalism in the tale of a great king with three sons. The oldest was given his passion and aggressiveness, the second his sweet nature and childlike qualities, and the third his intelligence, cunning and coldness. Suddenly I saw the story as one of succession and power. And to me, that's such it's such a King Lear story, like it feels very Shakespearean. And I think that's why it works as this film that transcends time and, and will continue to be seen as one of the greatest storytelling film moments of of history. Yeah, that was um it's hard to even do a plot summary of of a movie <laughs> like The Godfather because it's it, it's like there's it's not it isn't it isn't a plot driven movie but it's like so much of the brilliance of the film is in the subtlety of these relationships and the way they're conveyed and the brilliance of the filming. Um, but I, I totally agree. I actually was also going to bring up King Lear uh, just thinking also about Vito's sort of um, expectation of performances of love for him as the King, as Godfather and, you know, what is real love and what is uh, you know, just a performance and, um, certainly about power and who's going to be taking over and sort of the instability of that. It, it, it's it's Shakespearean in those ways, and I think just Shakespearean in its in its high drama and its theatricality and the the themes that it it, it conveys that are universal to human nature. I mean. Um, uh, I assume most people watching are not uh, members of the mob, but <laughs> we all relate on some level to the temptations of, uh, you know, of the world in different ways um, that, that, you know, there's quite a dramatic fall that Michael experiences, but um, there are many other subtle things that he gives up, gives up about his soul along the way that um, all of us could be guilty of. So um, it's certainly a universal story in that way. Yeah, I was trying to think in some ways what what attracted to me to the story, even at a fairly young age. And I mean, there's plenty of superficial things like the costumes are amazing. The actors and the actresses all look amazing. And um, the setting is beautiful. I mean, we brought it up because we were talking about our love of this New York setting. And, and there are a lot of people who would argue that the second Godfather movie is is potentially better than the first. I think both Katie and I agree that we're 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 the <laughs> we we're for the primacy of the first Godfather movie, partially because it has this wonderful, rich New York setting that is full of all of that kind of romance of, of that era, the 1940s, whereas the, the later ones are set in, I think, Nevada and I think in Cuba. And uh, there are parts in um, in New York as well, but it's less, I, I don't know, I, I find that setting less, <laughs> less appealing or less engaging. Right. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But to be honest, though, the, the thing that does draw me to the story the most, and even at a relatively young age, was that kind of, fascinating study of what what does it mean to have power and what does it mean to have like loyalty to family and I think actually there was another great quote about the use of power in it by a Catholic priest Father Frank Deciano who said that the Godfather is one of the greatest parables of the illusion of power both in what it cannot attain 
and in what it destroys in its path. The parable can be endlessly applied into politics, into relationships, into religion. Once power is its own purpose, it becomes demonic. And power at the service of something must itself be restrained, lest it become self-centered. And I think that's such at the heart of, of the Godfather, which is this question of power and what does it mean to look for power at all costs. And and I think as a Catholic, it's even, there's an element, there's an extra element of interest, which is this kind of Catholic backdrop to the story. Obviously, the Godfather is the name of it. And while there is a mob term for the, in terms of the way that the mob works, that the Godfather is a particular term that is almost kind of divorced from its Catholic setting, that it is its own thing about establishing points of relationship and points of fealty. But there is this sort of Catholic tapestry, which the movie happens in front of. And uh, Francis Ford Coppola seems to be quite ambivalent or quite negative in some ways about the way that he sees in particular the church and the hypocrisies in the church and the way that people say one thing and do another in terms of their faith. But at the same time, it's so clear that the that his Catholic upbringing has really permeated his filmmaking imagination, particularly in these films. They're just so rich in the way that they use Catholicism both as that kind of highlighting the hypocrisy of humanity, that, that, that they are willing to say one thing and do another, um, but also to juxtapose against this very violent community with the kind of idealized, like, you know, you'll have someone learning to shoot a gun with a nice picture of, I think, St. Joseph or, or Our Lady in, in the background on the walls that, you know, they're even just in small ways that we're pointing to a better or a more idealized way of living with this much more corrupted and violent way happening right in front of us. Yeah, The Godfather is certainly a movie of juxtapositions. I think uh, there's sort of a lot of just visual irony throughout. Uh, there's a lot of scenes in gardens, things like that, that I mm. think are certainly supposed to be evoking a certain amount of innocence, especially I think there is, it is a very clear divide. And um, Vito says this explicitly, you know, between the world of women and children and the world of men and the world of men is very brutal and violent um, and is uh, supposedly at the service of uh, this sort of idealized family life world. But we know that nothing is quite as it seems. So that's very true. And I think that the Catholic sort of backdrop imagery um, it, it adds weight to all these decisions. I mean, of course, I'm sure we'll talk a little more in detail about the extremely dramatic ending. But um, I think that whatever um, Francis Ford Coppola's, you know, individual feelings are about the church, he certainly, I think, presents a world that where good and evil are objective realities. And I think that... Um, that the, the the sacramental imagery drives that point home in really powerful ways, because we're not just talking about, you know, oh, that's a good idea. That's a bad idea. We're talking about Satan. We're talking about, you know, uh, hell or heaven. We're talking we're, like these are serious choices that are laid in front of these characters. And I think having the um, visual and thematic backdrops of the church uh, just uh, drive that home all the more so. 
Um, it was actually really interesting rewatching this movie. Uh, it was just like perfect timing because we were at a baptism this past weekend and uh, we were the godparents. And then we came home and watched The Godfather. And even the priest had brought up, he's like, I just watched The Godfather this weekend. And we were like, and I was like, I renounce Satan. So <laughs> we got to sort of act out. I was like, I do renounce him. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, like, to participate in that beautiful um, ceremony and be a part of it. And then to see it played out in this movie and understand the sacramental reality that is being portrayed. And then the uh, just extreme violence juxtaposed with that. And when, you know, I had literally just been holding my, you know, very tiny little godson and to feel that innocence and then see that innocence displayed um, in the movie uh, with these scenes of, of such brutality. I think the choices that the characters are making and that are presented to us just take on such a seriousness. I think it really adds so much to the film. Yeah, I think maybe that's a great starting off point to talk about one of the, I was going to say themes, it's more a story arc that I wanted to explore a little bit, which is the journey that Michael Corleone goes on as he's the, he's the youngest son who moves from this more innocent space into this much, much more sinister role. And I, I think the reason why I want to talk about that is exactly because what you're saying is that what the movie does is give such weight and such space and time to really see the kind of transformation that he goes on, that it's not something, it's interesting because in some ways it happens quite quickly, um, but in a way that is, it's almost this like really small thing that starts the whole thing rolling, but he starts off the film um, the, the the film opens kind of famously with the wedding of his sister and it's this beautiful, big, bright occasion and he shows up late in his military uniform and his girlfriend Kay, who is very much not, like the whole wedding and the whole family is so Italian, like it's Italian-American, but it's so much enriched in that immigrant culture and they're all wearing, you know, similar things and they're all involved in this culture and then he shows up late he's visibly different he's wearing a different outfit his girlfriend is very waspish she's very you know she's got that kind of very new england look she doesn't fit in with the the italian uh, dark hair and brown skin and all of the kind of robustness of that culture and so he's very obviously an outsider and then they make it very clear they start talking about him as an outsider and he says that's that's my family k that's not me um, it's made very explicit that he is standing outside of his family and while he loves them it's about he's very much focused on his life as as separate from them and his life with Kay and you feel like even if he still has kind of ambitions of power or he's kind of resting on the the achievements of his family, which are achieved through corruption, that he is trying to establish a different way of life for himself and he wants to set himself apart from it. And what we see then is just this very kind of human moment, which is that when he hears that his father has been shot and he doesn't know whether his father is alive or not, it, it kind of, it, you almost feel like that that moment where he, you 
everything changes because he suddenly realizes how much he values his family. And so he starts, you just see him, he begins to start sitting in, in the rooms where all of the discussions are happening of retaliation or what kind of violence is going to come or, or what, what is the kind of reality of the situation from the, the planning of the different families in, in terms of these ongoing attacks that are now going to be happening of back and forward and, and how they're vulnerable. But he's still separate to them. He's still not actually taking an active role in any violence. And then he goes to visit his father in the hospital, which is, I think, my favorite sequence in the whole film. I just adore it. But he realizes that, you know, everyone's missing. The the guard that is supposed to be watching his father's room is missing. And he realizes, oh, there's going to be an attack any minute now. And he manages to move his father's bed. He manages to scare off the uh, um, uh, the attackers by standing up out at the front of the hospital, pretending he has a gun. And um, when the police show up, he is he encounters a corrupt policeman called McCluskey who punches him in the face and breaks his jaw. Um, and McCluskey is essentially in on the attack on his father. And this is really the catalyst for Michael to s- step into the role. It's, you know, there's this this famous line from the movie, it's, it's business, it's not personal, but it becomes very personal. And yet, Michael is a person of great cunning. He's very intelligent. You know, he understood what was going to happen to his father. He was very adept at figuring out what to do and how to how to act. And so in some ways, these these elements of his character that have have been there all along really come into to play now where he wants to step in and wants to protect his father. And that means opening the door into this world of corruption. And, you know, that is the turning point of the movie. And it's so fascinating to watch because so many close-ups of his face and you just see these kind of inner workings behind his eyes as he starts to change his perspective and shift his, his values and his virtues to this new way of thinking. And it's such a compelling story. Yeah, that is that is an amazing turning point in the movie. And uh, he actually says to his father, and it's like a very touching moment with him. He says, you know, I'm with you now. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, that means so many, I'm with you now. You know, maybe I wasn't before on different, you know, not just in the literal way, but um, I really take that as, you know, his allegiance has changed. Um, you know, I'm with the family now. I'm with you now. And it's certainly his his moment of discovering, you know, uh, maybe these avenues, these legitimate avenues of power that he had been pursuing are not as legitimate as he as they would seem. I mean, we have a corrupt cop. And I mean, this is just one of many we would be led to believe. I mean, you know, and I think maybe his eyes are open to the fact that maybe how his father and his family does things is not so different than, uh, you know, some other, some other, you know, politicians and governors and the army or, you know, that these, these things that he had believed in as legitimate avenues are not what they seem. And of course, in that amazing opening sequence of the wedding, the first lines of the film are, I believe in America. And uh, the, with this, his name's Bonacera, I think. He's uh, this undertaker who has come to Vito, come to the Godfather um, to seek justice for his daughter, who has been very brutally abused by these men and the court system just let let them off. And so we're in, we're, that's the first um, sort of encounter with justice that we, we get is that the official systems are not going to give it to you. And if you want justice, you may have to go another route. And I think that Michael's sort of 
fall here is that part of that realization of what is justice and what is justice if not loyalty to my family. And um, I think that's why the film can so easily manipulate our loyalties and our emotions because you're rooting for the mob. I mean, you are on, (laughs) you know, um, and many of his, you know, maybe you're not saying, okay, I would go commit murder, but you're like, you know, these are pretty legitimate issues. Like this is a corrupt cop. Like his father's going to be killed. Like you understand his actions. They're entirely understandable. Mm -hmm. The feelings of vengeance are understandable. And also just this, um, reality of this fallen world we live in where it's it's sort of a dog eat dog reality where if one if Michael wasn't going to commit this act of violence somebody else was going to commit it against him or his family um, so it, it becomes very uh, oddly understandable but that's part of the the beauty of the film is we also become not as uh, outsiders to this situation we become roped into this uh, into this very brutal world uh where where justice is is a blood sport you know i mean this is what people are asking for that's what um bonacera says and of course vito says we're not murderers well (laughs) um but i think what he means by that is these are in his mind and this is something you do get to learn a little bit about in godfather 2 in his mind his actions are justified and necessary and part of a grander scheme for the future of his family uh and that otherwise basically he would have just been taken advantage of by the system and i think that that's what michael comes to believe and that is uh that that is the first moment when he decides uh you know i'm here i'm with my i'm going to protect my father and uh whatever that takes yeah I love that. And it's so true because, you know, obviously you don't want to ever come across like you're apologizing either for the fictional mob or the real mob. (laughs) Definitely not an apologist for the mob. Just have that on the record. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, that is the kind of power of the film and not in a, I think there are other films that are trying to do it in a, in more of a gotcha way, which is like to say like, ha, even you can be turned. And that is kind of what it's saying, but it's also portraying how people make difficult decisions because of the failures, like, you know, the fallenness of humanity. It is the failures of the police force. It is the failures of the justice system that, you know, I think as Catholics, we understand that that we have this great need for justice. And thank God that we have God who will administer justice, at least not necessarily in this world, but in the next. But that justice is something that is this deep cry of the heart. And so when people are faced with injustices, it becomes so much more understandable to turn to these unofficial or illegitimate routes of attaining it. And yeah, that there, it, there does almost feel like a rightness and a properness. And particularly in it, when you're looking at Vito, because we then see his sons who then take it further in, in various different ways and don't follow their own father's code so much. But as you said that, you know, Vito is very careful about the way that he administers violence. And it's, it is it is violence and it is horrific, but it's in some ways also quite measured. And we see later in the film, and it, there's a lot of debate as to whether essentially the eldest son, Sonny, is horrifically murdered in, in as part of this back and forth between the vengeance for the attack on, on Vito. And Vito's the only one who has the bravery to call a halt to the violence and say, 
peace treaty and say that like I'm not going to enact revenge for my son I'm going to put an end to this this particular cycle now there's plenty of discussion as to whether he, this this is a stop or is it a pause is he just you know passing on the baton to his son Michael to then enact in, in, enact the vengeance there's not it's not explicitly stated we don't know what kind of conversations he had with Michael but at least he has this kind of ability to have a, a, a sense of restraint on the violence that he used Uses. And so, it's especially at the beginning, when you're kind of following him as the leader of the family, you're like, you're buying into this. You're, you're saying, I can see the value. I can see what he's doing. And even in the ways that he's reticent to get into drug trafficking and he's, you know, mindful of, of the harm, as well as the kind of harm to his own legitimacy if he, he gets involved in it, that he also sees that this is a step further than gambling, a step further than, um, I don't know, prostitution or something like that, that this is maybe even something more devastating to communities and he doesn't want to get involved in it. And so, yeah, there is this sense of glamour to it and also even that kind of close family connections. I think that's also something that's very compelling that, you know, you do really root for them as a family and, you know, opening with this big family celebration, it just seems so um, attractive and communal and all of these things. And yet, as we see, as Michael comes into this role of of being part of the family, you actually see more and more of the ways that how this is hypocritical to a certain extent. You know, Vito talks about uh, you can't be a real man unless you spend time with your family. And yet all of his sons are having affairs and, you know, being unfaithful to their wives. And, you know, there is this kind of ability to hold the two things in protecting the, the women and the children from this world of violence. It's almost like you have to compartmentalize them, which also allows you to do things that also harm them and and you can justify them in your head because I guess in some ways, you know, the things that you're doing bad are part of the other part of your brain as opposed to the family part of your brain. And you feel like you should be able to hold both of them at the same time. And, And that's one of the really interesting things about Michael. So he begins with this girlfriend called Kay. And by the time he's come over to his his father's I'm with you moment, he's becoming more uncomfortable about where Kay sits within this new family perspective. And what it what is the next kind of big fam- big plot moment is is that he shoots these two, like I said, the guy who's trying to kill his father and this corrupt cop in again another amazing sequence. They have a gun planted at the location where they're having this meeting and he goes to get the gun. And instead of, I feel like a lot of movies, he would just barge out of the bathroom with the gun and shoot them and move on. But he sits back down and there's just this like close up of his face for several seconds, if not a minute. And there's like this screech of the the train moving overhead and we just get his eyes. It's all that's moving is his eyes as he contemplates this thing that will cut him off from the life that he had planned before. And then he shoots them. It's very graphic. It's very in your face. It is a real moment. It's not kind of glossed over as some sort of fantasy violence. It's very visceral. And because of that, he then goes into, into hiding in Sicily for several years where he invests in his family's tradition. This is where his family comes from. This is, again, it's sort of a retreat into his family world. And he actually meets and marries a young girl there called Apollonia, who is, you know, the perfect Italian wife. She is exactly who his father would have probably expected him to marry if they, you know, if he'd had his choice. So they have these two characters of Apollonia and Kay, because Apollonia 
gets <laughs> murdered pretty quickly and he comes back to Kay and there's just this kind of tension between the wife that he thought he was going to have, the girlfriend that he thought he was going to be a particular kind of husband to. And it's such a fascinating thread in the movies that's not even necessarily the main thread, especially in the first film, but this this question of how do you relate to your spouse or your vision of yourself or your plan for the future and how your relationships play in, into that. Yeah, you brought up a lot of really good points there. Um, I want to go back and think about Vito's how Vito's motivations are maybe a little different than uh, Michael's in that I think that Vito's uh, sort of his, his motivations are for the sake of his family, whether you agree with those methods or not. um, I think that that is clear and unambiguous for him. And we see that um, when we get to know him as a young man in the second film, Um, he's actually, he is quite a loyal husband and a good father and an involved sort of family man in ways that maybe his sons are not. But he, I think, has the ability to put that pause on the vengeance after Sonny is killed. Maybe it's out of practicality. Um, I don't know all his motivations. And I don't know if like his aversion to the drug trade is as much a moral qualm that he has, or as he says, you know, I don't know how many politicians and judges would be friends with me if they knew I was into narcotics, you know, they have gambling, okay, you know, whatever, but like, narcotics is such a dangerous thing. I don't know if they would still be my friend. So he has this, he's extremely practical. um, But he also, I think, is motivated in a very real way um, by his love for his family, which you see time and time again, just like how he interacts with them, how he, um, yeah, just how, how he decides uh, to distribute his justice, I think is totally family motivated. But when Michael becomes head of the family, I think that the um, clarity of that purpose becomes a little more muddled because it, Michael becomes obsessed with power. I mean, it's a, it's for the sake of power. It's not for the sake of this sort of grander goal of, of protecting and bringing his family into a good light or anything like that. Um, although that's part of it, I think Michael's motivations are colder and more calculated. And I do think that his marriages uh, represent two very different sides of him. And certainly the way that he interacts with Kay before his big you know, change to his, his life of crime. Um, We see like him, he's playful with her. Um, They go see a movie. They're joking around at Christmas time. They're doing Christmas shopping. Like they're very much, you know, a relaxed, uh, candid couple together. Um, And then after he does this, uh, this killing and is, is, is away for a few years. And then he reconnects with Kay. He's become, very, very serious. Cannot imagine them joking around together anymore. And he uh, has clearly put up this emotional barrier um, between them and sort of puts his hand out to her and says sort of, it's not what I was going to offer you before, but it's something. And uh, whether he believes it or not, he says the Corleone family will be legitimate in five years. I don't know if that's a lie or not, if he really thought that, but um, Kay apparently buys it or loves him enough not to ignore that, uh, that, that the reality of what she's getting into. But yeah, the, the, the women, um, although they are more, I guess, background characters, I think seeing the way that these powerful men, Vito and, and Michael and Sonny, all, all these men interact with their families 
is really illustrative of these larger themes about what this is all about. And, uh, and certainly the family culture of this movie is mm. part of its huge Absolutely. appeal. Yeah, I love that. I, you're so right. I hadn't quite realized how much of a change there is in his like playfulness and his humor. You're right. It totally disappears once he goes into this world. And there is that real sense of her holding on to, and also presumably him, because in some ways he doesn't need to come back to her once he becomes a, a widower. And he, I don't think he ever mentions 2K that he was married for a while when he was in Sicily. He just comes back and, and takes up with her again. But yeah, there is that sense of like holding on to the person that he mm -hmm. was. I mean, maybe he thinks that she's sort of the, having her still in his life is going to sort of hold him accountable to some of those higher ideals he used to have. I don't know. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, it would have been a lot easier <laughs> in a way to just meet somebody new who maybe uh, wouldn't be, you know, so thrown by what a what a huge change he's made. I also think just like that, just to go back for a second to his scene of killing his, you know, the, the killing scene is that speaking of family dynamics, it's so sort of bizarre because his it's like very um, like all this closeness between the family you see as they are like explaining mm -hmm. to him, like how to murder somebody. Like you see the whole, they're all sitting around like eating Chinese food, like talking about how you should drop the gun. Like, you know, they're talking about, you know, they're cooking spaghetti and meatballs and then practicing shooting with the, you know, and how to hide the gun and everything like that. And you just see how entangled this family is with this violence and also that Michael is clearly being welcomed into something that they had purposely kept him out of that he had purposely stayed out of and it's you can see that there is sort of this open arm you know mentality of like okay you're you're one of us now like welcome to the family in a way you know it's it, it feels uh, initiation like yeah absolutely and that he's been missing out on this closeness in some ways by by keeping himself apart I think maybe in some ways I wonder is there a sense in which because he wasn't involved in the family his priority was power which he was originally going to try to establish legitimately and then when he decided to invest in the family. He didn't bring that family centeredness that Vito had, that he brings this ambition, which could have, I guess, could have been channeled in a more legitimate fashion. Although you do wonder maybe he would have always ended up, you know, there's that line in it, the the idea that I, I'll make him an offer that he can't refuse that, you know, which is obviously mm -hmm. implying that I'm going to hold a gun to your head and then you're going to do what I <laughs> want you to do. But there is that sense in, in The Godfather of mm -hmm. like how many choices are freely made, like how many choices, even without a literal gun to your head, how many choices do you have not to get sucked into things? Because like we said, his initial killing does come from what feels like a very justifiable place, not just vengeance, because while we would feel like maybe vengeance is appropriate, or let's say expected rather than appropriate, it's not just that, it's that there's repeated attempts on his father's life. And so he, he has good reason to feel like, unless I eliminate this person, my father will never be safe. And this is my only way. 
And so you do really sympathize with it, but it is, it is the moment like that you can't turn back from. And it's such a masterclass in filmmaking to really linger on that, that few seconds before you, you actually, you have everything in place to do the thing that's going to change your life and your perspective. And I loved a comment that I saw, which was that McCluskey, the, the corrupt cop had punched him in the face and broken his jaw. And that like, it physically changes his face that this is an external thing, but that like, this is a changing moment. And as we've said, there is this, this huge weight on the fact that, you know, when legitimate forms of power and justice let you down, it does leave this void that people move into. And I think obviously in much, much smaller ways, but it does remind me how important it is as a Catholic to live out my Catholic faith in ways that aren't hypocritical or that people can look to me and say that she actually does what she believes because it it can be such a turning point for people to abandon their faith in in institutions or in legitimate power or in authority or any of those things like one of the first things he says to Kay um when he comes back is he says my father is no different than any powerful man any man with power like a president or a senator and she says Uh, Do you know how naive you sound, Michael? Presidents and senators do not have men killed. And he replies, oh, who's being naive, Kay? And it is true because all of these senators are in the pockets Mm -hmm. of the mob. All of these policemen do seem to be involved. There is a lot of corruption. And so, yeah, it is naive to think that there is real justice um, in in those avenues, especially in, in the the world of the godfather that yeah that there is such a there's such a ripple effect from these broken systems and how it's never just a case of like oh it's okay for me to line my own pockets or it's okay for me to take this shortcut or it's okay for me not to follow up on this thing that's actually um you know important for people that yeah it has all of these devastating consequences that you know he sees that actually power can only be attained illegitimately. Like you said, I don't know how much he believes whether the family is actually going to go legitimate, but if he does, there's a real irony in in how he goes about it because he goes about it by killing a whole load of people and then saying, once I do all of this killing, then we'll be legitimate, which is... (laughs) First thing first, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Road to hell filled with good intentions, right? So, and I mean, even I think there is the question in that great reply he gives to Kay of who's being naive now, there is sort of this larger question of, you know, this is a... We live in a violent world. I mean, even the legitimate means of being, I mean, wars exist, you know. Um, they, They've just come from a war. Yeah, I mean, he's been a soldier. I mean, that was a legitimate, uh, you know, maybe he killed people. I mean, there are, it's a brutal reality that we live in. And we we sanction some of that violence because of circumstances or justifications. And all he's saying, you know, is that I have, some different justifications, you know, than than these more legitimate avenues, but it's the same. And uh, we can uh, debate about whether or not that's really true. Um, but he makes a good point. And I think that that the the world of the Godfather, the, the darkness of a fallen world and how we respond to that darkness is is what's at stake. And we were given opportunities to sort of see could have chosen a different way, but um, the, the ways he chooses are certainly not outside. Of, it, it, he's, he's not imposing a darkness that isn't there. He's responding to an existing reality that is brutal and harsh, and um, he's just a participant. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And then I just love how the film goes from this intense world of dark shadows of him committing this crime into this sort of blazing sun of Sicily where uh, I was reading an article which makes a great point of it feeling like in Eden and there's all Mm. of this imagery of the beautiful women and the beautiful landscapes and it just feels like a totally different world to the world that he's just come from. And I think that's that, that time in Sicily in some ways almost feels like a chance for him to redeem himself because he really leans into, he does actually seem joyful. He doesn't have that playfulness that we were referencing earlier, but he does have a sense of love and he does really love Apollonia when he, the, the, the girl that he marries. But even in this world of that, like seems like a kind of Eden, first of all, he's kind of delving into his family traditions and embracing who he is as a Corleone and like even the place he goes to is the place that his father came from. His name wasn't originally Corleone, he just changed at Ellis Island when he arrived to his town name. So he goes to the town of Corleone. And so it is all about coming back to this central moment. And then as we're referencing a couple of things from the second movie, we find out that actually this is the scene, this is the place of like where the seed of violence comes from that his father fled intense violence and we do get a hint of that in the first movie as well because while we have all of these beautiful women there's no men in these towns because they've all been killed by gang violence that you know it has really stripped out what should be a a world of abundance and children and life-giving force but it's all been stripped out by this violence because all of these men have been killed and so it's such powerful storytelling and visual storytelling the way the film uses these kind of light and dark motifs that in both its visuals and it, in its kind of thematic storytelling. Yeah, there's there's so much. I mean, the, the, the storyline with Apollonia is just, it's such a tragedy, you know, because I feel like we're like presented with this very sort of innocent love story. Um, there's like a great scene where you see them walking together and then they pan out and you see like the entire family yeah. like walking like 10 steps behind them, you know, like it's just like a very, like, very old fashioned courting going on, these beautiful sort of Italian villas sort of crumbling around them and gardens and everything, like you said. It's, it's both a discovering of the fact that this is his lineage, is a is a lineage of, of violence, that he can't escape that. But then on a literal practical level, mm-hmm. he's the one to bring violence back to that Eden, that he can't escape what he did. Um, and that even sort of in this... Um, you know, lovely, idyllic, uh, you know, newlywed life that he's established there with Apollonia, that the violence that he had been escaping is going to find him and is is not going to kill him, but it's actually going to kill the innocent, um, which I think is also a theme that we see is that a lot of times in this quest for justice, you don't get it. You know, I mean, that, that, uh, that, you know, Sonny even is killed on his way to revenge his sister, which is just such a harrowing scene that happens when her husband is like beating her up and she's very pregnant. And it's just it's a horrible scene. And Sonny is going to go, you know, defend her, protect her. And uh, he's killed en route to do that. So there are so many times when sort of the ju- the justice that you're rooting for is we, is we, like we don't actually get to see it fulfilled and i think that we are supposed to take away that um you know that that this doesn't work <laughs> it's uh it, it's going to end up killing innocent people in the process and uh and that you know unless somebody like Vito comes in and breaks the cycle of violence you're mm-hmm. also it, it's just never going to end so 
as much as we do sympathize with the motivations, I think that at least it's offered to us to see how how this all plays out. And I think Apollonia's storyline and just it's like sheer, uh, just the, 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 she didn't have to die. You know I mean? She's just this young girl. She meets him, had nothing to do with anything. It just is, it seems like such a waste and so unnecessary. And she's so clearly innocent in the whole thing. I think that that, um, is supposed to drive home to us just what Michael has sort of agreed to and what he's going home to. Yeah, his sort of Faustian pact. Everything that he really cares about will be stripped away. And you and I were just discussing just before we started recording how uh, one of the points we came across in one of the articles was highlighting how, how if Apollonia had survived, he would have had a very different trajectory, not necessarily that he wouldn't have continued to enact violence, but just that it's so interesting how he was trying to at that moment invest in a marriage that would have been very approved by his his family. And as we've mentioned that he comes back to Kay, and she brings this extra dynamic into it, because she won't be the kind of supplicant wife who doesn't want to know what's happening or is happy to be kept innocent or is happy to not know. Um, She does want to know more. And there was a great article, I think it was by Stephen Graydanis talking about the final scene in the movie. And it's very famous in that it ends with her asking asking Michael whether he's committed this great act of violence in that he's killed his brother-in-law, who is the the husband who is beating his sister Connie, which led to the death of Sonny. So we're seeing this kind of intricate web of violence that's happening. But she's horrified by the idea that maybe he commanded Carlo, his brother-in-law, to be killed. You know, he makes it very clear, this is the only time you can ask me about my business and the she she asks and he lies and he says no and so she's momentarily comforted and then she steps outside of the room and it's the room that as you you talked about uh, at the beginning when Bonacera comes to ask the godfather for help that it's this office room it's this central point of where all of this uh, power emanates from and the door is closed to her. And so there is this sense of her being on the outside. But the, the one of the articles I read made a really great point about it also being about Michael being locked on the inside, that he sort of built his, his grave, that he's now trapped inside the family and she's standing on the outside looking, looking back at him and, and seeing this kind of veil being drawn between them. Yeah, it's such a powerful moment because I really see in her face this realization, I think she's realizing that he's lied to her, you know, I mean, that, you know, she's seeing the role that he's fulfilling now, Um, you know, these men are, you know, kissing his hand, calling him godfather, and this, this is who he's become, I mean, he's, he is the head of the family now, and she knows what that entails, and uh, that door just closes on her, and uh, yeah, just so, so many kudos to Diane Keaton as an actress, I think she doesn't get enough credit, um, just in general, I think she's an amazing actress. I'm a huge Diane Keaton fan, but we looked it up. I think this was like her first major film. I mean, it was even before her early Woody Allen films. I mean, it's just brilliant. Um, and she, I think if you watch any of her other movies, she can convey a lot of subtle emotion. I mean, all, all the, there's not, yeah. a, there's not a bad actor in this cast, but um, that her face is the last we see. I think it's sort of supposed to be all yeah. of our, our faces sort of realizing what has happened, you know? Um, And of course we've been privy to see the depths of um, cruelty and violence that Michael has, you know, allowed and uh, ordered 
But I did like in that article, I think they brought up, it's a a C.S. Lewis Mm -hmm. quote about um, hell's doors being closed from the inside. And uh, we certainly do get that sense that this is Michael's choice, Um, you know, that he has a choice. He could go follow his wife and, you know, he could do things differently. And um, he hasn't. He's, He's chosen something else. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the Stephen Gray Danis article was talking about how in the book it ends with Kay going to to church to pray just uh, with her mother-in-law who's always been praying for her wayward sons and and you know the violence of her husband that this kind of motif of catholic women trying to pray for their troubled men which i think i saw another article which was saying that it's a shame that we didn't get that catholic moment but in some ways and I think we'll come to this next. There's so, so much Catholic imagery leading up to that point. I don't necessarily think it's needed. And Stephen makes this great point of that in some ways to have that scene would be to suggest that Kay has slotted into this role of the Sicilian wife, that she is going to follow her mother-in-law, that she is going to follow this pattern. And actually what the final scene does is something even more kind of emotionally disturbing, which is to to really hone in on what's happening both within their marriage and to each of them individually, that they, you know, are having this moment of separation at what should have been a time of them coming together, because what is this the centerpiece at the end of the film? It's so iconic. I'm sure most people have heard of it, but it is the, you know, it is the moment that Michael becomes a godfather and he becomes a godfather in more ways than one. So he becomes the godfather to um, his nephew, also called Michael, um, the baby that his sister was pregnant with when um, this great scene happened with uh, his elder brother Sonny ending up being assassinated. And so this this child is very tied to even violence before the child is born and he becomes the godson of Michael Corleone. And Michael uses, I don't know whether it <laughs> It's implied whether it's deliberate, but he has this moment of family occasion where he's gathered to become the godfather to his his nephew. And he, at the same time, has organized for the heads of the other. Um, so there's the five families and it, he organizes for the other four heads to be killed all in one big swoop in different ways. And so the film kind of intercuts between the, the two sequences of events, as you kind of referenced, and I'm so thrilled that you were at a, at a, at a baptism this weekend. That's so wonderful. Uh, congratulations in a very different setting. Yes, very different. <laughs> um, but as Michael is saying specifically, do you renounce Satan? It's cutting to the very violent deaths of people who he's commanded to be killed. And I, I mean, uh, no words can really do it justice, but I, I think it's better explained if I pull out, there's an article where it's described very well. So it says, the ecclesial liturgy provides the meaning of the events happening outside. As his nephew is baptized into the Paschal mystery, Michael is baptized into the mystery of evil. Coppola contrasts the baby's white garments, a symbol of its innocence, with Michael's dark suit, sunken eyes, and hollow features. He repeatedly cuts from the images of the priest's hands using holy objects, oil, salt, stole, etc., to images of the hitman's hands assembling their deadly weapons. The minister of life offset by the ministers of death. Michael makes the baptismal promises for his nephew, also named Michael. Coppola again intercuts his answers with shots of the mobsters moving to their targets, his voice echoing over the soundtrack as they gun down their victims. 
The effect is powerfully ironic. Michael's rejection of Satan coincides with the murders, thus revealing his affirmations to be lies. At the end, the priest pours water over the infant's head. Michael's baptism is a full immersion into the waters of sin, set in relief by his godson's immersion into the life of Christ. The religious ritual is supposed to to effect initiation into a new community, but it's demonic parody for Michael, confirming him overlord of the underworld as as he takes out the heads of the rival gangland families. As promised from birth, he ascends to a throne, but a dark one, the one his father tried to keep from him. It's his coronation. He's anointed godfather. Mm, Yeah, that's a great description. It's, it's, it is hard to do it justice, but uh, just when I think of that scene, it's like there's like this organ music playing and then you sort of hear the Latin murmurations of the priest and then you hear baby crying and there's just this like immense buildup. And then uh, there's sort of this big organ chord when, you know, he says, you know, do you renounce Satan You know, <laughs> and uh, and all his works and all his pomps, circumstances, you know, everything. And he says, I do renounce him. And that's when, you know, the organ music like, da, 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 and then you bang, bang. It's like, it's just such a, um, mm. yeah, irony even seems like too small of a word. It's just like, it's, it is, um, I really like the way that author put it as in like, as this baby, as his godson's being baptized into life, he's being baptized into death. I mean, it is an initiation in, in more ways than one that Michael has initiated himself into this world of um, brutality. And he's, he's, uh, he, he's now the godfather, as you said, in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's such a poignant moment because, yeah, he becomes this demonic leader. And he, in, at the start, you feel like he's almost like, I don't know whether prodigal son is the correct, correct word. Cause he's the one staying away from, from the, the corruption of his family, but he is, in the sense that he is apart from them and then he mm-hmm. sort of returns as as almost a savior figure and you know yeah. there's a part of you when you're watching it you're kind of rooting for you know but it is it is the great lie you think well maybe if he just does this one act of violence he can come back and just be a good person after that and you know as i said with the joke joking about his his attempt to establish his legitimate power like this moment of killing the other uh, gangland uh, rivals is is his move to become a legitimate family k you know <laughs> um, and this this great lie i mean it's obviously it's the famous yeah. line from Saruman. nothing would really change except our our methods that you know you can believe that you can do evil mm. and, and achieve mm-hmm. good and then i think ultimately what happens with michael is is that he loses the even desire to achieve good he just wants to achieve power and he will achieve power through legitimate forms because in some ways those are more easily protected. You do at least, even if the police force are corrupt, if you have legitimate power, you can at least appeal to the police force, but he's not going to let go of this, this corrupt power. And even the things that he's investing in, in terms of his legitimate power is, are things like casinos, which, you know, don't necessarily Mm -hmm. belie a kind of optimistic or virtuous look on the world. Um, I don't don't know whether I'm uh, tarring the whole um, casino industry. I don't know a lot about it, but yeah, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's moving to a place of family unity and harmony. And, And we don't see that in the next film. They haven't, they haven't recaptured any of that 
kind of genuine joy from the very start of the first film of, of them all at the wedding together. It just fractures further and further and becomes more materialistic and more corrupt and more, um, uh, you know, e- more evil, really, that we see, um, you know, Michael then goes on to perform even more acts mm. of violence that horrify us, that it is it is far from the beginning of a legitimate enterprise. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is not the beginning. No, it is. Uh, it, it is. It's the beginning of something, but it's certainly not the beginning of uh, of, of legitimacy. Yeah, I, I think with the second film, just to, to touch on it just a little bit, I, I think for me, it is less of a cohesive yeah. storyline. Like I find it just more confusing, honestly, like there are a lot of moving parts and yet like there's like you said there there's a lot of different locations and we're going back in time now and it's it's a lot going on but it has some incredibly powerful scenes that are very um i mean it's a great movie as well it just i think just doesn't hold together quite as um sort of perfect of an arc as the first film but some of the uh scenes that we see are just so horrifically violent and are right at, at the hands of of Michael and what he does to his family. And there's a, a famous scene where Kay refers to their marriage as an abortion. And just the, just the, you sort of just see the fruit of that moment that we see at the end of the, of, of this first movie, um, his decision, what it plays out. And um, it's, it's not good. It's not good. It, it, it's, um, you know, I think that mm. Vito was feared, um, but he was also loved. Yeah. And I think that Michael is just feared. I think, um, and I think that's how he sort of rules his empire um, is, is through fear and manipulation and violence. And I think he establishes that at the beginning here of his reign is he's not holding anything back. I mean, I can't imagine Vito ever deciding something as, you know, gutsy and crazy as to murder the heads of all the other families. I mean, what are you inviting upon yourself? What are you saying? I mean, you know, Vito was much more about building allegiances and, you know, we're civilized people. Like we can talk about this. Michael is setting, um, you know, times they are a change in and uh, he's uh, he's here for it. So it, it's very sad. It's a, it, I mean, I think of The Godfather as a as a tragedy in the Shakespearean sense, as we were saying in the beginning, just that there is this this culmination of his his decisions that leads to a very, very dark place. Yeah. And yet I think what's so powerful about it is that when I look back on the film, it's not I don't necessarily feel like there's a strong moment in which you can say, oh, if you just decided something different there, you know, that like it does feel like a a rolling Mm -hmm. stone that you just it just gets away from you. And I I don't know, like, obviously, I'm not saying he should have killed that first kill with the the corrupt cop and the the gangland leader who's bringing in the drugs. Like This is a drug, a drug trafficker and a corrupt cop, you know. Of all of the ones, it's the most kind of <laughs> justified. But I, I wouldn't even go so far as to say that I would agree with that. But equally, yeah. you know, he does find himself in this position where you're like, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, do you just allow your father to be killed or do you do you take action or do you, you know, it's it's hard to know what decision he could have made and what would have allowed him to to flourish it's hard to I I think the film is very clever in making it difficult to see where he went wrong or like what exactly was the 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 fatal flaw or the the fatal moment that like Mm. it's it's all of these things together in one big 
big kind of mess in the way that families really are, that like families are this big mess of allegiances and annoyances and frustrations and, and personalities. And just the fact that the eldest son, Sonny, is a hothead and he makes bad decisions and he he also um, begins violence. And in fact, even it's funny you notice in some ways, if there's one moment where things start to go wrong in the film, it's this meeting that Vito has with this drug dealer who he is trying to get the ability to to sell drugs in the area from Vito, the protection needed from the cops or just even the permission to to carry out this enterprise. And he needs funding as well. And Vito's never particularly interested in it, but he goes as a courtesy because that's what he does. Like you said, he's a he's a diplomat in many ways. And um and Sonny is the one who just just for a moment s- steps out from behind his father and says, Oh, I'm kind of interested in this. Like, oh, maybe we can make it work. And that's the thing that makes this other character, whose name I'm blanking on, which is really annoying me. <laughs> Is it Salonzo? It might be. Salonzo? Yeah. <laughs> that's starting to uh, a cooking item, but <laughs> Salonzo. Yeah. yeah, we we know. Yeah, yeah. It's Salonzo. Salonzo then sees this eagerness in Sunny and says, "Well, if Vito was out of the way, then I could do I could do business with Sunny." And that's that's the thing that starts everything, you know, spiraling. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny that. It's just that one moment of of Sonny saying, oh, expressing an interest that is contrary to his father at a meeting. And the whole thing can kind of devolve from there. And so you really see how even the whole theme of the family loyalty that like Sonny shouldn't have spoken there because that was against the family, that like you see where these exaggerated forms of loyalty uh, are become necessary in this world of, of violence that it's it's so fascinating why it's so interesting to see this kind of microcosm mm-hmm. of a family because everything's so heightened because the stakes are so high because the relationships matter so much in the ways that things play out that yeah it is this kind of timeless story because it's so heightened and everything has this kind of peril that a single moment can transform the landscape of your family for the rest of time and even you know it results in the in your own death mm-hmm. yeah and we we see alluded to um you know uh michael says to fredo uh at a different point in the movie, you know, don't ever take sides against the family, uh, you know, in front of anybody else again, you know, um, and that plays out in very dramatic ways in the second film. Um, and I think that this idea also though, is that if we're thinking, especially from a Catholic perspective is like, this is also about like original sin in a way is that we can't quite trace the seed sometimes, you know, because everything something will be seem justified or, you know, well, that seems okay, but maybe not that. I mean, it, it is a big leap of, of, from Michael, you know, killing a, 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 a cop who was mixed up in the drug trade and trying to kill his father to, you know, this calculated brutal act of murder and, and murdering his own brother-in-law, um, you know, no matter how terrible a guy he was, but it's, um, these are big leaps that, um, we can't quite trace how we got from, from A to Z here. But, um, I think just sort of, it is a bigger question about, about humanity and, uh, you know, the world that we live in, um, 
like I said earlier, that this is uh, Michael and Vito and all these characters are sort of in a way that they're, you know, I mean, this is very much a fallen world and they are reacting to it. Um, and really, I mean, Vito was, as we, we all sort of like love Vito. He's like this, you know, great yeah. guy in some way. I mean, he seems so much softer, you know, than Michael and there's so much more, um, you know, and he's older. He's like, he's, you know, he's a grandpa. You see him playing with his grandkids. There's a sweet scene when he comes back from the hospital, all the grandkids come and greet him and give him little drawings and everything. Um, so we, we see Vito in this life, but really, the, you know, Vito made a choice way back when about how his family was going to operate in the world. And the, those choices have had, uh, you know, like the sins of the father are going to, you know, play, are not lost on the son. I mean, you see this generational guilt, generational violence, generational cor corruption. And I think that in a um, different way, we're all a part of that being, you know, in a, in a fallen world. And there are many times on much smaller scales, but, you know, equally important for the state of our souls, like that these things uh, happen in very small ways that maybe they don't seem so bad or they seem justified in that situation. And then suddenly you're down a whole other path. I mean, this is like nature of humanity. So, you know, I re-listened to that early episode of the podcast that I did on violence in movies just to remind myself in the run up to this film. And so if... If, you know, the portrayal of violence in films is something you kind of have an interest about, you can go back to that episode. I think it's, it's pretty early. It's like the 11th episode of the podcast. But, you know, there's still good stuff in there. Um, but I think the reason why The Godfather is such a powerful example of violence used in movies is because of the way that it is actually showing at, like souls at stake. And it also, its violence is very in your face but in a way to me that is talking mm -hmm. about how it's not something flippant you are taking a life it is a real thing it is a very serious thing it is a matter of your soul and so it doesn't shy away or glamorize or wash these deaths they are very in your face and they are very painful to watch and so and because the story that it's telling with this violence mm -hmm. you know the violence is about is central to the story in the way that you know so many of the biblical stories are like that that you know that these are the stakes at which these these interactions are happening and and yeah i just think you know it's not exactly revolutionary to say that the godfather is an amazing movie but hopefully for <laughs> for listeners this will maybe be an insight onto into why it's particularly relevant and important and worthwhile to watch from a Catholic perspective as well. And just because, you know, great filmmaking is great filmmaking. Wow. Just, I, I, you know, every time I, every time I sit down to the film, I just can't get over how beautiful yeah. it is and how well shot and like you said, well acted and well told it is. It's just a masterpiece yeah. in, in storytelling. Yeah. I mean, aesthetically it's, it's a beautiful movie. And I will just say if anybody, you know, maybe if you haven't seen it or you're wary to watch it again because of the violence, like I have a pretty low tolerance for violence in movies. Um, I don't like gore. I don't like any, I can't do horror or anything like that. Um, but to me in the Godfather, the violence, even though it is so violent and can be so shocking, it, the violence uh, serves a purpose and it, it doesn't, like you're saying, it doesn't shy away from the reality of what's, ha of what's happening. And I think 
what actually offends me more about violence in movies is sort of the flippancy with which it's portrayed and um, just sort of the uh, just excess for no reason, you know, just like seeing it just just because clearly they're I don't know what they're trying to do, entertain people or shock people or something like that. But every violent moment in The Godfather serves a, you know, hugely important thematic purpose. And I think that on some level, it's important that we don't look away from the reality of that violence. Um, It would be a lot different of a movie if everything was kept off stage. It would be a lot easier to justify these things. It would be a lot easier to, um, you know, uh, to, to think this is all okay. Um, but we, we see it up, up close and personal. And I do think, um, that can be important to engage with. So it's, you know, it's not a light movie, but I like, I don't, when I turn, when we turn off the Godfather, we're just like, we just like say, wow, we're just like, wow, it's such a good movie. Like it gives you so much to talk about and think about. And like, it's, um, it's so compelling and beautiful and well acted. And, um, I think ultimately, even though I said it's a tragedy, it's a um, it's a convicting film in that it asks you to ask really, really tough questions about human nature and uh, and to confront these things with with seriousness, which I think can be very. um, And I also don't think it's it's a tragedy, but one I don't know, it's not totally as despairing as even some Shakespeare. plays. It's not quite as. Um, yeah, it's not. It's not no, quite no, yeah. the everyone's dead at the end kind of. Um. <laughs> no, I mean it's not clear walking out with Cordelia's body. You know, I mean this is you know just it's it's we're we're not given that. So it's uh, and I do think you know I mean there are other films. I haven't watched the third one, so I can't speak to that. But it, uh, I do think that that even though there is some finality to that shut door at the end, I do think the ambiguity of the future of the family, you know, we don't know how this is all going to play out. And um, at least from what I read, it sounds like there are, is some redemption that awaits in the third film, I think. Um, So maybe not in all the ways, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, if you like, like you just did an episode recently on um, Flannery O'Connor. I mean, it's sort of a similar you know, sort of these questions of violence and grace and choice and everything like that, like all those themes that are what's so powerful in her writing are certainly prevalent here. So I think that from a Catholic perspective, um, from a human perspective, there's just so much depth to to be discovered there. Absolutely. And I just want to say thank you so much, Katie, for coming on to talk about this. I've, I've been waiting for someone to do a Godfather episode since I started the podcast. So oh, I was just so thrilled when we, we both uh, cited You've Got Mail and The Godfather as favorites. I mean, and then we realized that The yeah. Godfather is actually heavily referenced throughout no. You've Got Mail. So, I mean, it's not as random as it seems, but um yeah, no, I was just so thrilled. What a what a great way to to spend an afternoon just discussing this great movie. So thank you so much for having me. You can maybe see our two episodes on the two podcasts as, you know, companion pieces of, of a guy. Absolutely. Yeah. Whatever mood you're in, you know. I mean, we've got something for everyone. <laughs> 
And as much as I've enjoyed doing this episode, I do also want to say, I do know I've had a, this season so far of the podcast has been a little film heavy. So don't worry if you prefer the kind of more bookish ones, there is a book one coming next time. So, so uh, hold, hold on to your seats. There's more literary goodness coming down the pipe, but I just adore talking about this with you, Katie. And I just have my, my one usual question, which is if you can tell me something you're enjoying at the moment. Oh, gosh. Um, what am I enjoying? I'm enjoying, um, to no one's surprise who listens mm-hmm. to my podcast, I'm enjoying this time of year. I'm enjoying this fall weather. Went to New England recently, got to see the peak fall leaves and everything like that. And I'm looking outside and it's sort of a blustery, cloudy day, which to me is, you know, and I've got like a cup of tea and there's nothing I like more than that. So I love, uh, you know, Thanksgiving through the new year to me is just such a great time of year. So I'm loving that. That's wonderful. And I kind of have two, although it's kind of funny, you're saying autumn, I dived into Christmas this past weekend, which uh, I've discussed this on the podcast, I try to not overdo the Christmas things too much. But I really wanted to go to these stately homes in England, they do themselves up for Christmas, and they do themes. And, you know, there was one in Castle Howard, which is where Brideshead Revisited was filmed. So anyone who enjoyed our Brideshead episode will like to look into that their theme is a Christmas fairy tale, I believe, and all the rooms are done up in these amazing decorations. And I was really excited to take my godson Gabriel. So I did that this past weekend. I really enjoyed it. We went to Castle Howard and we also went to Chatsworth. I'd recommend them both, but I was really blown away by Castle Howard. It was amazing. And I had a great weekend with my friends. So I did a sort of, I just mentally said, I'm going to do a mini Christmas at the the start of November. I, I have to admit, I've had some Christmas music on in the background. So I'm, you know, you know, sometimes you just, you need a, you need that little bit of joy, don't you? So that's amazing. You got to do that. Yeah. And sometimes you just, you just have to roll with it. Whatever's, whatever's coming. I wasn't able to go in December, so it had to be November. I also went to a concert last night and I really want to recommend the performers. So I actually went for the support act, which is a, a folk singer songwriter that I've followed for a very long time called Sam Amadon, who is amazing. And I would really recommend, but I didn't really know much about the main performer, which is uh, Chris Thiel. And he was amazing. It was just a fantastic concert. And he has a new EP out. He's a sort of prodigy mandolin player. And he plays a big range of things. He does folk music. He does actually like, you know, he played some Bach sonatas, some Bartok. It was amazing. But he his newest EP is called Lay Songs. And uh, it has some really great tracks on it. I think one is called Ecclesiastes 2.24. I could have that wrong. But he also has one called Salt in the Wound of the Earth, which is actually based on C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. So, so um, given that our listeners are such so fond of wow. the Screwtape Letters, or at least have to be, because I keep referencing no. them, he actually called out to the audience, does, any, does anyone know the Screwtape Letters? And I was the only one to like... <laughs> He was saying like, oh, aren't they great? You're like, you're the person who knows that they're really great, aren't they? I was like, yep, that's me. (laughs) Man, that is, that's a great concert where you're getting a shout out for the screw tape letters. I mean, that is, that's the kind of concert I want to be at. That's great. (laughs) 
Absolutely. So I, I really want to recommend him and his recent EP, Lay Songs. So I just wanted to get that, that in there. And is there anything you want to promote? You've already said, obviously, I think anyone who enjoys the Risky Enchantment podcast will enjoy Born of Wonder, your podcast, your blog. You are intermittently on Instagram. Um, I think you're on it at the moment. Yeah, I have I have like a very just like ADD relationship with Instagram and I delete it maybe sometimes multiple times a day, sometimes for a month. So you, it's not the most reliable way to, to contact me, but I am on there and I have, you know, an archive of posts and things like that. So you can find me at Born of Wonder, um, but probably uh, just going to the website, bornofwonder.com. If you just go to the contact me page, you can email me anytime. And um, yeah, I, I, I love to hear from people. So please feel free to do that. That's wonderful. And I think I referenced it in the last episode. I did miss an episode because of my traveling. So thanks for bearing with me. Um, but we will be back in two weeks time. And thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin McLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless. Mm-hmm.